All right, while everybody is finding their seats and getting comfortable and squared away, let me go over the uh, announcements. I'm getting good reports from Camp Rete. The kids are having a good time, and they're having some really good uh, Bible studies and and uh, everything. And so the spiritual side is going really well, as well as the uh, physical side. So they're doing great. You can uh, see some pictures of some of their activities if you go to their blog, which is camperete.com slash blog. Okay, just put slash blog on the end of camperete slash blog. That's B-L-O-G. And you will get, um, and they are posting stories, videos, pictures. Allegedly, I saw several pictures yesterday. I haven't seen some of the some of the other things, but I've been sent a number of pictures and everything, so they're having a good time. Also, men's prayer breakfast, Saturday morning at 7.30. If you have a son or grandson or plural, uh, bring them. It's a great opportunity for them to uh, spend some time with, with men who are focused on the Word. And then Vacation Bible School, if you get a chance when we're done, walk back through the prep school area. They're decorating for... Uh, for for the uh, Vacation Bible School, so you can see how that, that is going. We also have now completed information on the Egypt tour and the Greece and Israel tour with prices and dates and all of that information, so you can you can check that, that out as well. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we are going to make sure that we're spiritually prepared. I know that most of you have pretty much eradicated your sin nature by now. And then when you get out on the freeway, it comes back in all of its glory, right? So we always have to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, have a few moments of silent prayer if necessary. And I don't know about you, but it's usually necessary for me. And then we can focus on our relationship with the Lord as we study his word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer as we open, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's such a joy to be able to study your word, to get into the details of your word, to understand how it all fits together. It's more than a lifetime of study. We just lay the foundation here in this life, and we have an eternity to fully comprehend all of your word and to see uh, how it all has explained to us uh, about yourself, that we may come to know you better and walk with you and enjoy our relationship with you. Father, we we know that in this life, even if we dedicate as many hour, waking hours of the day as we can to the study of you and your word and in prayer, that it just barely scratches the surface. Father, we pray that we may not settle for a mediocre, superficial Christian life, but that we might be challenged by your word to dig deeply into it and to uh, continue to press, push ourselves to press on to 
uh, greater understanding of your word and uh, more consistent spiritual walk. And Father, tonight as we continue our study on the basics of Christianity, the basic beliefs of Christianity, we pray you'd help us to understand these important teachings, these important doctrines, uh, that we might uh, better be able to communicate them to others and just rely upon uh, what we know to be true in our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are studying in First Peter, or Second Peter, but we are not really in Second Peter right now. We'll just look at it briefly when we get started. We started a small sub-series two weeks ago, or two lessons back, actually, the last two Thursday nights we were on an Independence Day special, and before that we had covered two lessons on what is Christianity. This is going to be the third, and there will be a fourth. It's just uh, there's so many things that are left out, but that's I, I really hope that we can use this as an introduction to the ba- two basic series that I taught some years ago. As a, as a more simplified uh, overview of the basics of the faith. And we have two series that we have that are related to the foundations of, of, li- of the spiritual life. So we call it, fa- I mean, of, of getting born again, salvation, foundations for life, how we move from spiritual death to spiritual life. And then there's another series called Foundations for Living, which deals mostly with the with his spiritual life and goes goes beyond that, and so, uh, <clears throat> but that is not always as basic as some people would like basics to be, and I understand that. So hopefully, in this overview of in these probably four lessons, that will be a good introduction that people can listen to and watch, and then move from that into the foundation for life and foundation for living. Tonight we're going to look at the Holy Spirit and angels, Satan, and the demons. So those are two areas. I, as I went through my notes and I was ready to go on into the next section, which will deal with uh, how we understand the Bible, our hermeneutics, and then uh, prophecy, I realized that that was probably not ever going to happen tonight. We won't even get close to that. So we're going to review just a little bit so we get our heads back in the game. We are studying in Second uh, Peter, and that should be Second Peter 1, 2 on the title slide, guys in the back and on your notes. Second Peter 1, 2, to those who have obtained a like precious faith. We're zeroing in on that phrase because it implies that there is a set body of beliefs. There, in our ecumenical age, which began at the end of the 18th century and really blossomed in the 19th century and bore its po- poisonous fruit in the 20th and 21st centuries, there's this idea that, that people can believe whatever they want to believe as long as they're sincere. You also had the flowering you, it existed before, but it really blo- blossomed and bloomed in the 19th century of Unitarianism, the rejection of, of a Trinitarian theology. You also had 
uh, numerous developments in denominations that emphasized works, that de-emphasized eternal security and the grace of God, that emphasized legalism. And so we just had a tremendous number of things happen in the 19th century, the worst of which was the in, the invasion of liberal thought that came primarily from the uh, universities and seminaries in Europe and as Americans sent their uh, star pupils over to Europe and churches sent their pastors to the the primo seminaries in Europe. They came back as unbelievers. They did not believe in the inspiration of Scripture. They did not believe in a supernatural uh, God who created all things. They absorbed evolutionary ideas. They absorbed soci- sociology that has its roots also in the same kind of anti-supernatural thinking. Many other areas that infected the church so that in the rise of Protestant liberalism you had the rejection of, of divine inspiration of Scripture and redefining it as man recording his experiences with God. So there's the rejection of Scripture. Uh, Before that, there's just the rejection of the Trinitarian God. I mean, that just doesn't pass the tests of finite human reason. So we can't believe something that God is three in one. That just seems irrational to the finite human mind. So let's throw out the Trinity Let's throw out inspiration. Let's throw out miracles. Let's throw out the uh, hypostatic union, the deity and the humanity of Jesus. Let's throw out this horrible idea of penal substitutionary atonement. That just shows that uh, a God who's very, very cruel. And let's get back to just a good old works spirituality, defining it in terms of our own feelings and emotions. And then along with that, they threw out premillennialism, rejected dispensationalism as it came along. It had a more secularized view of, of postmodernism, that, that man on his own efforts, on his own morality, could bring in a, uh, a man-centered kingdom of God. And that is a whole area in itself that shapes the horrors of of the 20th century because it becomes secularized and it enters into, it brings about World War One and World War Two because of the way it, 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 it brought about other ideas or affected other ideas. So, so we have a set body of faith that is the biblical view of Christianity. And I've gotten him recently to always preface Christianity with that adjective. We believe in biblical Christianity because the term Christianity itself has come to be used by so many people to refer to all branches of people who label themselves as Christian, and they don't believe in the historical orthodox, and by that I don't mean Eastern orthodox, I mean that which aligns with the Word of God, which follows that straight line. They don't believe in a biblical Christianity at all. And this has affected all of the mainline denominations, although some of them that were generally more liberal in the early 20th century have come back to what appears to be, but is not, a more conservative position called neo-orthodoxy. But always I use that phrase, biblical Christianity, when I'm talking to people to emphasize the fact that there's a lot of non-biblical 
Christianity. So Peter talks about a like precious faith. His language is very similar to Jude in Jude 3 where he talks about the fact that we are to contend or wrestle or fight for <clears throat> the faith that is a set body of doctrines, which by the time they wrote, Peter in the mid to late 60s and Jude probably uh, after 70 A.D., uh, definitely after Second Peter, they have an understanding that there is a specific set of beliefs, that if you don't ascribe to these beliefs, you're not a Christian. You may be a born-again believer, but you're not espousing the beliefs of Christianity, the, the set doctrines. Paul warned about this, as I've pointed out in the past, warning the elders at Ephesus uh, that met with him down in Miletus, that savage wolves would come in. Some would come from among themselves. Some would come from outside the church. And so they were told to take heed in verse 28 and to watch in verse 31. That is a role of a pastor. That is a role of the leaders in the church is to stand guard on the set body of doctrinal uh, beliefs. And so this is why he is, Peter is warning his readers that there are false teachers that are going to come up among them. And it's interesting, and I'm going to be, I've pointed this out some and will point it out more, that if we think about what is this set belief, what, is, what, what makes Christianity Christianity, what's that set body of doctrines? I remember sitting around the tables at Dallas Seminary many, many times saying, okay, if you were to reduce Christianity to what are the core beliefs that you have to believe or you're really not practicing biblical Christianity, people would talk about a lot of different things. One of the things that would not come into the conversation, which we'll touch on a little bit tonight, and that has to do with angels and demons and the identification of the sons of God in Genesis 6-3 as, as fallen angels who, have come, who took on human form so that they could have sexual relations with uh, the daughters of men. Most people would not put that on their list of the top 10, 15 things you have to believe to stay within the bounds of biblical Christianity. Except Peter talks about this and talks about angels in both 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and Jude talks about it in Jude as if that has to be part of that set body of doctrines that people believe. And they, they when, when, as well as the flood, as well as Noah and a worldwide flood, all of these things are not optional. They are integral to biblical Christianity. So we ask this question, what is the body of doctrine? What is the body of teaching that, that we believe? We started looking at God. You always have to start with God. You don't start with the Scripture. That came secondarily. You start with, with God and that we saw that God is, exists as a trinity. He's the creator God who is the sovereign ruler of the universe. He created everything in the universe, the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, according to Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. The normal language here, just to point out a couple of things, the normal language here is six 24-hour consecutive days. Now, there's been a lot of debate, as you know, ever since the early uh, 1800s about how old the earth is, the creation, evolution, 
many different views. Most of the historic evangelical seminaries from the 20th century are waffling on this. They come up with these various, various views. But this is a foundational passage. It's right in the middle of God's command to the Jews that they are to uh, rest on the Sabbath day. For, for you shall work six days. That's the first command in this commandment. You shall work six days and rest on the seventh. Well, why? Because in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Well, if these aren't six consecutive days, then that creates a big loophole in the command to work six days. What if those aren't six 24-hour days? What if those are 6,000-year periods of time? Then I just have to work. I can work for a 1,000 years and never take vacation, and I can be a workaholic and make a lot more money. I don't have to rest and learn to trust God on that seventh day or seventh year or 49th year, 50th year. I can just uh, work all I want to. But if those days that are focused on in verse 11 are the same time period, which the context indicates, as you have in Genesis chapter 1, then you can't escape the fact that these are six literal 24-hour consecutive days. Unless, or, or else you just blow the whole meaning of verse, uh, verse uh, 10 and 11 and the command to rest on the, on the uh, seventh day. So the foundation is understanding that we have a creator God who is totally distinct from everything that he created. He's the sovereign ruler of the universe. And as a result of that, he is in charge. He is the sovereign creator. He is perfectly righteous and just. We have seen that. And as a result of that, we know that this is going to imp- impact his, all of his acts. He is the creator God. That was our starting point. He's the holy God, which means he's distinct and unique. He's not like anything else. You can't compare him to anything else. He is the redeeming God because he forgives us. He he made a plan of salvation based on redemption so that we could have forgiveness and be restored to a union with him. And he is a forgiving God. We went through all those uh, different categories. Then we saw that out of that we can understand the authority of Scripture because if this is God's Word and it originated with God, then it bears God's authority. It is not something that originated from man, which is the liberal and the neo-Orthodox deception. So the key passages for that were Second Timothy three sixteen and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed. And then in our very passage, in our Uh, book we're studying, 2 Peter, talks about how the holy men who wrote the Old Testament, the holy men of God, were moved by the Spirit of God. So you can't get away from uh, inspiration and inerrancy. Uh, 2 Peter 1.20, because we know this first, that indicates a primary truth, that no prophecy of Scripture is any private interpretation. In other words, they didn't come up with it on their own as their own interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God who spoke as they were moved by God the Holy Spirit. And that goes right into the second chapter that there were false prophets in the Old Testament among the people, and there will be false teachers among you. So you have to grow in grace and knowledge of the word so you can spot the deception, the fake theology, and the fake doctrine, and the fake teachers. 
Third, we saw Christianity is grounded on a specific declaration of redemption, meaning there has to be the payment of a price. We're told in Romans 3.23 that the problem is that man sinned. God created Adam and Eve, placed them in the garden, gave them a test. The test was whether or not they would eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God prohibited. And so the woman was deceived first and ate, and then the man followed. And this resulted in immediate punishment of spiritual death and incredible consequences followed that. Spiritual death is defined as separation from God. And the consequence was that every molecule of the universe was corrupted. The heavens, the earth, the seas, and all that is in them became corrupted because sin entered into God's creation. And it caused spiritual death in man. He lost righteousness. So we're told in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that is a way of talking about the entire essence of God, but primarily his righteousness and his justice. So we failed. We were not, um, we were not uh, uh, in line with God's righteousness. We fell short of his righteousness. And therefore, we needed to readjust to his righteousness, and that comes through justification, a declaration that we are righteous. And so verse 24 of Romans 3 says, having been justified or declared righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. First Peter talks about the importance of redemption in his first epistle, that we don't know you not that we were redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers. That's a slap in the face to pharisaical theology. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Why? Because he made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It goes back to being adjusted to his is righteousness. The way that we do that is by simple belief in him, in Jesus Christ. John twenty thirty one clearly states that that these things are written. John wrote the gospel. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Nine, over 95 times that verb to believe without a modifier describes the issue in the gospel. John 3.18, he who believes in him is not condemned. Why? Because when you believe in him, you receive the righteousness of Christ and eternal life. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he's still, he is still spiritually dead. He is still unrighteous. He doesn't have eternal life. He's condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So then we looked last time at who is Jesus. We have to understand who he is to understand what he did and why he did it. He is undiminished deity. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity. We looked at the Old Testament prophetic passages for the coming of the Messiah that emphasized that he would be both eternal, indicating deity, as well as he would be born, which indicates his humanity. The New Testament states it very clearly in John 1, 
1, Colossians 1, 18, and Hebrews 1, 3. Just remember those chapters, John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1, and then Philippians 2, 15, that Jesus is undiminished deity and true humanity. And then we get to our topic tonight, which is who is the Holy Spirit. Now, liberalism did a number on the Holy Spirit, just like it did a number on everything else. Because at the, the, the worst form of liberalism was Unitarianism, which actually had its origins in the 1600s. It grew to some degree in the mid to late 1700s, especially in uh, the New England colonies and the New England states. But it really takes on uh, a, a greater sense when you get into the 19th century. Early, early Unitarianism isn't the... Uh, train wreck that modern Unitarianism is. It did maintain a number of other uh, doctrines initially, but as it worked out its presuppositions, it got worse and worse. And so they denied that there were three persons in the Trinity. Uh, The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, was just a man who was given deity at probably the baptism of John the Baptist. And then they treated the Holy Spirit as uh, some force. It just when it talks about the Spirit of God, well, that's just another way of talking about God. It is not a distinct person. The problem with that is that's not how the Bible treats the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is clearly uh, distinctive. Okay, we're going uh, to skip past that slide. We'll get back to those things later. So we see that the Holy Spirit is a distinct person. Now, what makes a person a person? What's interesting is if you look at anything written since about the mid-1700s, they're going to say, well, the essence of being a person is you have emotion, you have intellect, will, and emotion. But as I pointed out Tuesday night, the term emotion doesn't come into use in the English language until about 200 years ago. And it quickly gets co-opted into what becomes psychology and it is overloaded with subjectivity. And prior to that, the terms that were used among thinkers and theologians was the intellectual affections of God, which were driven by volition, and human beings created in the image of God had intellectual affections that are determined by volition. But then you have bodily passions, Bodily passions are irrational. Bodily passions are related to the sin nature, and they are not the same as the intellectual affections. And sometime soon, I hope to develop uh, those uh, that teaching a little more for everybody will help you in many different ways to understand things. So uh, uh, what happened, once you started talking about a person as intellect, will, and emotion, then you find when you read most theologies that have been written since then that they will go and they will show how uh, Jesus had intellect, Jesus had emotion, and Jesus had will, and then they'll go into the Holy Spirit and they'll say the Holy Spirit has intellect, the Holy Spirit has will, and the Holy Spirit has emotion because you can grieve the Holy Spirit. But that is, uh, that's an anthropopathism. So here we have the Holy Spirit as a distinct person. He's not an impersonal force, and it's not simply a synonym for God. 
we have the distinctiveness of the Trinity spelled out in Matthew 28, 19, in what is known as the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The breakdown indicates three distinct persons. You have the same kind of listing in 2 Corinthians uh, 13, 14. But the key issue is thinking about the Holy Spirit in terms of the fact that he's not just a force. He has a separate and distinct intellect, and he has a separate and distinct will as indicated by certain passages in Scripture. For example, 1 Corinthians 2.10, God has revealed them, that is, these things that are not understood uh, in the previous verse, God has revealed them to us through his spirit. So the spirit is capable of revelation, revelatory activity. For the spirit searches all things. That's an action of intellect. Yes, the deep things of God. Uh, And then you get down to 2.11. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Knowledge is a function of the intellect, not a function of the emotions or It's not the function of just a life force. So the Spirit of God knows things. He has intelligence and intellectual ability, as also seen in Romans 8.27. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. The Spirit has mind, intellect, and intellectual activity. 1 Corinthians 2.13, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So the Holy Spirit teaches. He has intellect and knowledge, and he is able to communicate. So that indicates all of that part of the uh, aspect of being a person, but he also has his own will, not that he's going to use it in distinction from the Father, just as the Son does not use his will in distinction from the Father. But in 1 Corinthians twelve eleven we read, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. That's as the Spirit wills. It's the Spirit who is the one who oversees the distribution of spiritual gifts. And every believer gets a spiritual gift at the instant of salvation. And we live in a world where I've heard people say, you'll never have a good church, you'll never grow to maturity if they don't first learn their spiritual gifts. So you have to have spiritual gift workshops. And there's a lot of, it's just psychology. They're going to give you all kinds of temperament tests and everything else, and then they're going to come up with an artificial uh, uh, parallel with the spiritual gifts and tell you what your spiritual gift is. But it's just like in this life. I remember when I was in high school, and my parents would send me to uh, go through some testing as I couldn't make up my mind what I wanted to major in or what I really wanted to do when I grew up or all of those things. Everything was kind of in the same ballpark, but you would take these different Uh, aptitude tests to see where your strengths and weaknesses were and everybody has those but they change there have been a lot of studies showing how these things uh, will change depending on your circumstances at the time your mood lots of other factors come come into play on that 
Uh, but the reality is, if you just keep growing up, experiencing things in life, maturing and doing things, you will discover that you gravitate to certain kinds of things. And you don't like to do other things. You may not like to cook at all. You may like to clean at all. So that's not going to be part of your whatever career path you take. But you may be very detail-oriented, and so you need to find something there. You may be like me and not like numbers, so you don't want to try to major in accounting. Or you may love numbers, and so you need to go into the sciences or accounting or something like that. But those things become apparent as you grow up and as you mature. Same thing's true in the spiritual life. Just study the Word, keep growing, keep applying, and try to serve the Lord in any way that comes along and take advantage of all kinds of opportunities. And sooner or later, you'll discover that there are some things that you enjoy more than other things. So, But it's the Spirit who distributes those spiritual gifts. Uh, Romans 8.14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Leading is a function of the the volition. And you have um, Acts 16, 6 to 11 also talks about how God the Holy Spirit directs the activities of Christians. Now, the second point is that uh, the Holy Spirit has been involved in everything in human history since the creation of the world. He was involved in the creation of the world, Genesis 1-2. The Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. And the word that is used there is a word that is used to describe the hovering of a bird over uh, her nest, of a mother bird, uh, as bringing those eggs to uh, the point where they will hatch. And so... This is the the imagery of God, the Holy Spirit, working to bring about uh, the creation. We also see that the Holy Spirit is involved in the virgin conception and the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see the Holy Spirit is clearly involved in creation activities. Uh, in Second Peter one twenty two, it is the Holy Spirit that works through the human writers of Scripture. And we see in Romans eight eleven that the Holy Spirit uh, raised Jesus from the dead, that that is specifically stated in the text. Romans eight eleven says, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So the one who dwells in you is the Holy Spirit, along with the Father and the Son, but in this context it's talking about the Spirit, and states that he raised Jesus from the dead. Twice it states it in this in uh, Romans eight, eleven, and so all of these activities indicate a person, indicating that he's not just a force, or it's not just a synonym for the Father, and that he, like the Son, are, is intimately involved in creation and everything that happens in relation to the creation. Somewhere along here, I moved. I was editing and moved things around, and I think I, I, I skipped a number, so we'll have to straighten it out as I go. This is number three, not four, which the slide's wrong. I am not inerrant. The Holy Spirit is involved in a number of other ministries for each believer. Now, this is in the church age. 
In the Old Testament period, there were a different set of ministries. The God, the Holy Spirit, did not have a personal relationship with each believer as he does in the Old Testament, where, as he does in the New Testament, the church age, where we're to walk according to the Spirit or by the Spirit and we're indwelt by the Spirit. You didn't have any of that in the Old Testament. There were specific empowering and enabling actions by the Holy Spirit for the leadership of Israel. It didn't have anything to do with their spiritual life. It had to do with giving them the talents, giving them the skills in terms of leadership or military to do the job that God had them uh, installed in that position for. But in the New Testament, it's more personal. He guides. Jesus said to his disciples that the Spirit would come and guide them into all truth, that he would be speaking to them, they would be, uh, he would be hearing, and he would be telling, John 16, 13. Those are all actions of a person, by the way. He guides into truth by guiding, speaking, hearing, and telling. Second, he convicts of sin in John 16, 8. So he is going to work on the inside of a person to utilizing their conscience to make them realize uh, that they are a sinner. He performs miracles. Acts 8.39 references the Spirit in terms of a miracle. And he intercedes for us just as the Son does in Romans 8.26. By the way, that's why we don't pray to the Son or to the Spirit. We pray to the Father because the Son and the Spirit are interceding for us. I've heard some people try to argue this because Jesus always prayed to the Father. Well, of course he did. He wasn't going to pray to himself. That's not how you argue that position. You argue it by saying that Jesus is an intercessor, the Spirit is an intercessor, and you don't pray to someone who is an intercessor. You pray to the one they're interceding to, which is the Father. So we address our prayers to God the Father. Now we come to the fourth point. Just subtract one from the number I have there on the screen. But in this church age, the Holy Spirit is vital to the life of the believer. That is what is so distinctive about us. It's wonderful, these privileges that God has given us in this church age. The Holy Spirit indwells us. He never leaves us. He's, he's as we've studied in Ephesians, he's given as a seal, a guarantee of our future salvation and our future inheritance but he has this personal relationship with each one of us. But it starts with his indwelling uh, ministry. So there are four important ministries. There are others, but this is basic basics, and so I just want to focus on four of them. First of all, we have the baptism by means of the Spirit. He is the one who is used by Jesus Christ to bring us into union with himself. And there's other things that relate to that, but the main idea that we see in Romans uh, 6, uh, 4 through 6, is that he, he is used to identify us with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. This baptism by the Spirit was prophesied in Matthew 3.11. John the Baptist said, I indeed baptize you by means of water, unto the new position of repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, 
whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will, future tense, he will baptize you with. It's the same preposition as used with water. That means by means of the Holy Spirit and by means of fire. That's where it starts. That's the prophecy. And it occurs for the first time in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, you have the descent of the Spirit on the disciples. They're all baptized at the same time. They're already believers. And then uh, from that point on, you see it when the Samaritans are brought into the church by, by Peter and John, and when uh, Cornelius and the Gentiles are brought into the church by Peter in Acts chapter 10 and 11, and then when... Um, John, I mean, when Paul goes to Ephesus in Acts 16 and 17, there's the uh, John, the uh, excuse me, the followers of John the Baptist, who are Old Testament saints, but now they're brought in as equal members of the body of Christ. Each of these under the authority of an apostle. So we're also told in Galatians chapter 3, 27 and 28. For many of you as were baptized into Christ, in other words, he's excluding those who weren't believers, as many of you as were baptized into Christ to put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now that verse has become controversial and misused and abused in terms of feminism, evangelical feminism because they want to make, say, well, see, there's no longer a distinction between male and female. All the parts are interchangeable. No, they're not. What, that's not what this is saying. It's saying that in contrast to the Mosaic law, where a Jew could go all the way into the inner sanctum of the, of the temple or tabernacle, and Greeks had to stay far away outside the wall, now we have equal access to the Father. Uh, slaves could not get into the uh, inner part of the temple or tabernacle. Only free men could. And now that's not going to be an issue because the the veil has been torn at the time of the death of Christ. There is equal access. Same thing, male or female, women could had to stay out in the courtyard of the women and they could not, did not have access to the to the temple. But now everybody has access to God because we are in Christ, for you are all one in Christ. It doesn't have anything to do with distinction of role. Then, second, we read, in this church age, God the Holy Spirit dwells in believers. This is clearly stated in Romans 8.11. This is important. I've had some people that you know who, uh, I'm not going to name their names, but they have some odd views when it comes to 1 Corinthians 3.16. So as I was discussing this problem with uh, Jim Myers in Kiev, he said, well, what other verse do you, would you go to? And I thought about it. I said, well, Romans 8.11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So that's talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit very, very clearly. Now you can see why... People would come along and think that maybe in 1 Corinthians 3.16 or 6.13, it's talking about the church. But what they go to is the pronoun there. It's the you, 
the uh, Spirit dwells in you in Romans 8.11 and in 1 Corinthians 3.16 you is a plural. You are the temple of God. So that you is a plural. So that means that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in the group. Well, let's look at the you in Romans 8.11. It's a plural also. And that means that uh, it's you use a plural when you're talking to people in a group, even though you're talking in terms of individual application. If I said, as I have on numerous occasions, y'all need to read your Bibles every day so you become biblically literate. Because I use the plural doesn't mean I'm talking about that you need to get together and corporately read the Bible every day. You use a plural in a command because you're talking to a group, but you mean every individual within the group has a responsibility to fulfill that command. And the same thing is true in 1 Corinthians 3.16 and in 1 Corinthians 6.13. In fact, almost every command in the first three or four chapters of, of 1 Corinthians is a plural. He's addressing the whole group, but it's clear that he means individual application. So every believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Third thing that we see is that we are to walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 and Romans 8.4 shifts the uh, preposition and says walk according to the Spirit. But they mean the same thing. I say then walk in the Spirit or by means of the Spirit. Is I think it's better because we're depending upon the Spirit. Uh, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Romans 8, 4, and 5 says that we can either walk according to the flesh or according to the Spirit. Romans 8, 5, for those who live according to the flesh, he's talking about believers, you can live a life that's purely dependent on your sin nature. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Well, what are the things of the Spirit? Well, one thing of the Spirit is just the Word of God. Other things of the Spirit have to do with the the uh, character that is being formed in each of us uh, in the image of Christ that is being formed in us by God the Holy Spirit, and that's identified by the fruit of the Spirit. And we live according to the, uh, we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, and we focus on that. That's a priority. We're learning to, that's how we learn who God is, and that's how we learn to love God. You can't love someone you don't know. Now, any baby can love their parents because their parents are feeding them and doing all kinds of nice things for them. And because for a baby, they are the center of attention. And so that makes them very happy when their parents are taking care of them. And so they love their parents. But that's not the kind of love we're talking about here. We're talking about a mature love that comes only as you grow older and come to know the individual and can build a deep, intimate relationship uh, with that individual. And the only way we can do that is to set our minds. That's a volitional decision. You have to make it a point that this is my priority. I'm going to focus on this in my life, and I'm going to exclude anything that distracts me from achieving that goal. Now, those things that distract you and distract me may be good things. They may be enjoyable things. They may be fun things. 
But if they distract us from God's purpose for our lives, then they become uh, a hindrance. And then the fourth thing related to the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us individually is in Ephesians 5.18, which says that we are to be filled by means of the Spirit. And I believe the use there is very clear in contrast to uh, what is said before, don't be drunk by means of wine. Wine was just an instrument by which those in Ephesus who were worshipers of Dionysius, the god of wine, would be able to enter into a, a more perfect fellowship with Dionysius if they got drunk. And so what uh, Paul is saying there is the key to spirituality isn't the tools of the, of the idol. And in their case, it was wine. And he says the key is to be filled by means of the Spirit. Now, what's interesting is to compare and contrast Ephesians 5, 18, and 19 with Colossians 3, 16. It helps us understand the nuance of the passage. We're to be filled with something, not the Spirit, because it's a dative there. That's, uh, you have to have a genitive if you're talking about what you're, the, the content. If I were to say, fill up my glass uh, with water, and I'm talking about content, I would have to use a genitive rather than a dative. So dative indicates means. Uh, and the result is what's described in Ephesians 5.19 and following, where we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord and being thankful for all things. So the, those are the results of being filled by means of the Spirit. But what is he filling us with? Well, we get that in the parallel in Colossians 3.16. Colossians and Ephesians were written at almost the same time when Paul is in prison in Rome. And they're very similar themes, and he says a lot of things in both epistles uh, because he has that on his mind, and they were universal principles of application. Colossians 3.16, he says... Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. There's your content. What is the Holy Spirit filling you with? Not himself. He's filling you with the word of Christ. And what's the result? Same results. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing uh, with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So when we are not walking by the Spirit, the Spirit isn't filling us with the Word of God and producing these consequences. But when we are walking by the Spirit, then the Spirit is filling us with His Word and producing these consequences in our life. So that's the basics on God the Holy Spirit. In this church age, He is critical for the spiritual life. Without the Holy Spirit, you're just living a life of morality and trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. We, as Paul says in Galatians 3.3, you were uh, saved by the Holy Spirit, but are you now trying to be sanctified by the flesh, by your own efforts, by the sin nature? So it's either one or the other. We have to walk according to the Spirit. Now, that brings us to the next 
issue, which is the invisible realm, angels, Satan, and demons. So we're going to just, again, just to fly over, just to focus on the basics of what the Bible teaches about angels, Satan, and demons. Now, as I begin this, we have to recognize that we live in a metaphysical age. Now, if you haven't figured out what that word means after 30 years of the New Age movement, then you're not in touch with your inner spirit being. (laughs) Metaphysical is just a term that actually means what is beyond the physical. You can't package it, feel it, touch it, anything else. It's an internal uh, feeling. And if you want to really learn about it, then, then we have a presidential candidate this time running on the Democrat ticket who's just a New Age uh, prophetess by the name of Marianne Williamson. And uh, there were so many jokes about her performance in the last debate uh, that, that she's, just, she's there for comic relief when it comes to looking at the uh, uh, Democrat candidates. She graduated from high school in my same class that I did. She wasn't a nutcase then. That didn't happen for several years later. But I, back in the 80s, I, I, when I was doing a lot of research and reading on the New Age movement, I read some of her stuff, and it's just as flaky as anything else. But that's what metaphysics means. If you want to talk about the New Age movement and all of... Uh, that kind of mystical stuff, then that's metaphysics. This is dominating our culture today. It's, it goes hand in hand with the, the postmodern belief that, that answers to life's questions can't be rational because the rationalism of the modernist movement absolutely failed. It didn't bring stability, peace, happiness, or any of the things that it promised. And so we have to throw away modernism and rationalism and empiricism and do a deep dive into mysticism. And only when we get in touch with, you know, our inner child, our inner adult, inner adult our inner heretic or whatever it might be, can we actually have peace and harmony and love one another. But, of course, we can't be Christians because they're just going to tell us we're wrong, so we have to get rid of them. That's the essence in all of the new Uh, the New Age movement, and they love angels because they're spirit beings. I remember back in the uh, 80s when I was doing a lot of reading, studying on this, and uh, Tommy Ice was pastoring a church in Austin, and not too far from where he lived, I don't even recognize this area anymore, but there was a mall, and there was a, a huge New Age bookstore in there, and we used to like going in there and go looking at all the books there to find the Christian books, the, quote, evangelical Christian books that they were selling in the New Age bookstore because that told us that they didn't see any problem with those evangelical psychologists and motivational speakers and everything else because they understood that those guys weren't biblical anyway. So they, they saw through the camouflage, which most evangelicals didn't. So that was pretty interesting. And then somewhere in there, I was out in Southern California around 88 and went to 
uh, a bookstore there that was made popular by Shirley MacLaine, who, remember, she wrote her book, Out on a Limb. Actually, it should have been titled Out on a Broken Limb, but um, the this bookstore was called The Bodhi Tree. Now, if you haven't studied Buddhism, the Buddha sat under a Bodhi tree, so that was a big clue there that this was into all this New Age mysticism. So they're into spirits and spirits talking to you and all those kinds of things, and that's how we learn about these invisible beings, the angels. Well, that's just wrong. The only way we can know anything about the angels or the demons or Satan is from the Word of God. We cannot know from experience because, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, the servants of Satan go around like uh, like ministers of light. You know, they're into deception, and so they will deceive us. The only way we can know truth about the angels, the demons, and Satan is to go to the Word of God. So the first point is that only the Bible gives us accurate information about angels, demons, and Satan. And the Bible talks a lot about angels. In the Old Testament, angels are talked about over a hundred times. And in the New Testament, over 165 times. And if you do an analysis of it, you'll, you'll see that angels are mentioned in 34 of the 66 books of the Bible. From the earliest book, which is... I believe it's Job, but if you think Genesis came first, that's fine. Angels are talked about in Genesis also. So you have angels in the earliest books all the way through to the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament, the last book that was written. So angels are covered over and accepted by the Bible as real beings all the way through uh, the Scripture. And so they are very, very real. Second thing we learn about angels is that they are not robots. They are an order of supernatural sentient beings created by God before the creation of the world. How do we know that? Well, in Job 38, 4 through 7, when God is asking rhetorical questions of Job, he says, uh, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when the, angel, when the sons of God shouted for joy at the time that he laid the foundation of the earth? So the angels were already, already in existence when God created the heavens and, and the earth. And they are creatures of God. They didn't just come up on their own. They're not emanations, which is what you'd have in Neoplatonism or in Gnosticism. They were created by God in Psalm 148.5, let them, in context, it goes back to verse 2, talking about the angels, let them praise God or praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. God created the angels. Now the term angel, whether you're talking about the Greek word or the Hebrew word, means messenger. And I think that means that God, in his wisdom, created these sentient beings, that means thinking beings, so that they would be given responsibilities for the oversight of the functions and physical functions and operations of the universe. That is an, the intermediate means by which God sustains 
the universe. When the scripture says God sustains the universe, it doesn't necessarily mean that he does it directly. He can do it indirectly through his angels who are like flames of fire. They are not visible to us unless they choose to. They are creatures of light. Now, there are four types of angels I want to talk about. There are others that are mentioned, a couple of others, but we're just going to talk about these four. There's cherubs. Cherubs have four wings, and they're described in Genesis 3.24. God put an army of cherubs around the Garden of Eden after he kicked Adam and Eve out. They're described mostly in Ezekiel 1.5-24 and Ezekiel 10.1-15, and again in Hebrews 9.5. They are embroidered on the inside of the of the the um, uh, curtains of the tabernacle, which is related to, as I taught in worship, the tabernacle is where the dwelling of God is, just as God dwelt in Eden, and their cherubim associated with Eden protecting the holiness of God, just as you have symbolically on the inside of the of the curtains of the tabernacle. You have the seraphim, which are similar, but they have six wings. Just remember that. Seraphim have six wings. Cherubim have four wings. And the word seraph means burning, and it speaks of their consuming passion for God. Uh, You see the emphasis on burning in Isaiah 6, 1 through 7, which is the only place that they're mentioned When Isaiah comes into the presence of God, he says, Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. And one of the seraphs uh, picks up a burning coal to purify his lips. You have another group very, very similar to the cherubs and the seraphs, uh, the living creatures in Revelation 4, 6 through 9. By the way, cherub, the I am ending is the Hebrew plural. So you can either talk about cherubim, or you can talk about seraphim, or you can talk about cherubs and seraphs. But I was watching some show the other day where somebody talked about cherubims, and I just, it was like fingernails on a chalkboard. So we, we try to sound intelligent around here. So the living creatures are described in Revelation 4, 6 through 9, and all of those three are all involved with the worship of God in heaven. And then we have one archangel. There's no more mentioned in Scripture. There are three more that are identified in church tradition in Roman Catholicism, but they are only mentioned in the apocryphal books, so we reject them as being uh, inaccurate. So Jude, verse 9, there's only one chapter in Jude. You don't put Jude 1, 9, although that's what computer versions have to do in order to fill all the little slots. It's just Jude 9, like Philemon 3. There's no, only one chapter, first, or Second John 2. Doesn't mean the second chapter of Second John. These are books that have only one chapter, so you just put the verse number. Jude 9 designates Michael as the archangel. And then in a separate category, line item on his own, we have the angel of Yahweh, who is worshipped as God by Gideon, by Abraham, by several others in the Old Testament. But the angel of Yahweh also speaks to Yahweh 
as a separate and distinct individual in Zechariah 1.12. And so we see this is a distinct personage who represents and reveals the first person of the Trinity. So the angel of the Lord or angel of God is a reference to the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. Then we have this creature, Hillel bin Shahar, who was the highest of the cherubim. He is this term, Hillel bin Shahar, which refers to the uh, uh, bright and morning star, the bright morning star, the evening star referring to uh, Venus coming up over the horizon. Uh, Lucifer is how it was translated into the uh, Vulgate, was the highest of the angels who sinned through his arrogance. That sin's described in Isaiah fourteen twelve to 14 and Ezekiel 28, 11 to 19. Now, there are two major classifications of angels, the elect or holy angels. Elect was a term that was used in the King James Version. I have changed that translation up here to the choice angels. They were choice because they were holy. They had a quality about them, as opposed to the fallen angels who were not holy, who had sinned against God. So 1 Timothy 5.21 talks about the elect angels, Mark 8.38, the holy angels, in distinct from, distinction from the fallen angels. Now, the fallen angels comprise, as we'll see in a minute, about one-third of all of the angels. Some of them are active, according to 1 Timothy 4.1. Others are imprisoned, as we'll see in 2 Peter. So obviously, this much is understood to be basic doctrine by Peter. 2 Peter 2.4 talks about the imprisoned angels. All fallen angels have been sentenced to the lake of fire, Matthew 25:41 which says that that it has been created for the devil and his angels. The fallen angels are the angels that followed Satan in his rebellion. Now these fallen angels are very are, are deceptive and they're referred to as the ministers of Satan in 2 Corinthians 11:13 through 15 talking about false apostles and deceitful workers. It's interesting. I've never seen anybody make this argument. But in these passages, like 1 Peter 2.1 and 2 Corinthians 11.13, it doesn't talk about false prophets in the church age. It talks about false teachers, which certainly implies that there's no such thing as a genuine prophet in the church age, or they'd be talking about false prophets as well. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, and no wonder... For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. So you think that he's going to be dark and that if Satan is present, you're going to feel some kind of heebie-jeebie, juju, black magic kind of rumbling in your soul or spirit. No, you won't because he's able to disguise himself as a perfect and holy and wonderful. He transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. You wonder how many of these televangelists are just fake ministers. They are the devil's disciples in many cases. They teach false doctrine. And their end will be according to their works. 
First, Second Peter 2, 4 talks about if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So one segment of the fallen angels are active, and there are other segment, segments that are in chains of darkness. There are others who are in locations where they will be released during the tribulation period. So that gives us our overview of who are the angels, who, are, who is Satan, and who are the demons. And next time we'll pull all that together and talk about something very important is understanding the framework of the angelic conflict for human history. Uh, I didn't develop that in the basic series, but there are two or three lessons on the website that if you just go to the doctrines and topics, you can click on angelic conflict and you'll see several lessons that summarize the angelic conflict. But we'll do an overview of that next time before we get into hermeneutics and we get into uh, prophecy and eschatology. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study these things this evening, to be reminded of the importance of God the Holy Spirit in our lives, that that apart from him we have no uh, advance or spiritual growth or maturation because we are to walk according to the Spirit, something unique and distinct in this church age. Father, challenge each of us with the need to uh, to do that, to walk according to the Spirit, walk by means of the Spirit, uh, to trust you, stay in fellowship, and take in the Word and apply it consistently in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.